Chapter 10 of Workers Together. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Workers Together or an Endless Chain by Pansy. Chapter 10 Invitations. However, after much worrying as to how she should invite Miss Mason in a way to make her understand the exact cause for the invitation, and how she should make Hester Mason think she really and honestly wanted her to come to tea, it all shaped itself naturally and pleasantly. At least so Joy thought. To be sure, she had to go through the ordeal of inviting Miss Mason, and that lady was sufficiently astonished to make it a trifle uncomfortable. But she was on the eve of departure for a week's visit and had to decline. Still, on reflection, even the astonishment was not all unpleasant. To meet Hester Mason at your house. Why, does she visit at your house? Oh, I understand. You are asking her there in order to help her. That is very sweet in you. I never should have thought of it. But what will you do with her? Don't you dread it? Isn't she a strange character? I wish I were going to be at home to help you, though I shouldn't know in the least what to say. Oh, it is Dr. Everett's idea? What a singular man he is! So full of whims! Oh, yes, the Sabbath school is very much improved since he took hold of it, but it is harder work to teach somehow. It seems as though he were listening to every word one said, even when he is at the other end of the room. It makes me nervous. I'm continually wondering whether it is the right thing to say. Well, I hope you will have success with Hester. Isn't it ridiculous that she has our family name? I think I shall be interested in her marriage. Dr. Everett is real good, and he gives one ever so many new ideas. I might accomplish something by inviting the girl to my house. I don't know exactly what, but it seems as though one ought to try. It does put notions into one's head to see other people at work. Do you go to the party tonight, Miss Saunders? Oh, I beg your pardon. You don't visit at the Belmonts, do you? Was that last question asked spitefully, with the intention of leaving a little sting in the shape of a reminder that the Belmonts, and people in their circle, did not invite her to their parties? Joy Saunders pondered over this question as she walked down the street, and came to the conclusion that there was no intention of stinging. It was simply one of Miss Mason's blundering sentences, plunging into the midst of things without thought, and then retreating with an apology that pointed the embarrassment. Nevertheless, it lightened Joy's heart to remember that Miss Mason could not be at the proposed tea party. It could not be postponed, for Hester was already invited, and this, too, had happened, and been carried out in a most natural manner. Joy, in a discouraging search for a match to a certain piece of goods, on which her mother had set her heart, wandered out of her usual beat into the store where Hester Mason spent her days as a shop girl. Joy caught a glimpse of her behind a distant counter and bowed and smiled. The girl's face flushed gratefully. Evidently the recognition pleased her. Then, but for the thought of Dr. Everett's plan, Joy would have gone complacently from the store, glad that she had by so much recognized the girl's kinship. As it was, she lingered. What was there that might be said now to help to make a path for a future invitation? Hester was engaged in trying to sell a bright-colored crocheted trifle, known to the initiated as a sea-foam, to a young girl of about her own age. 
she had placed it on the girl's head, tied the ribbons gracefully, and stood back in admiration. "'It fits you to a dot,' she said in hearty triumph. "'You'd better take it. I don't believe you'll find another in the city like it.' Did she really think that? Joy wondered. Or was it part of her business? At that moment Hester turned toward her. "'Isn't it pretty?' she said, catching the direction of Joy's eye. "'And doesn't she look nice in it?' Then was Joy thankful that she could heartily respond in the affirmative to both questions, although the young buyer turned on her a haughty stare, as if to remind her that she was giving her opinion unasked by the person most concerned, and hastily untying the hood, adjusted her hat, and walked away. Hester laughed. "'She is foolish,' she said. "'It is the prettiest color I ever saw, and she looks like a beauty in it. I think they are a lovely shape. We never had any so nice before. I'd have one myself if I could afford it.' The sentence ended in a little sigh. Joy caught at the opening opportunity. "'They are not expensive at all when you make them yourself, and I think they are much prettier than those you buy.' "'Oh, so do I, but then, you see, I don't know how to make one. I should as soon think of trying to build a house.' "'The stitch is very simple, and it is rapid work. I crocheted one like this in two evenings. Wouldn't you like to learn and make one for yourself?' Joy knew that her voice was eager, and did not wonder that Hester regarded her in silent amazement for a moment. "'Why, I should like it of all things,' she said at last." but I don't know who would teach me, I am sure. There isn't a girl in the store who knows the stitch. We were talking about it yesterday. We don't get any time for fancy work. But you have certain afternoons occasionally to yourselves, have you not? Oh, yes, once a month when it isn't the busy season, but we always contrive to have so much on hand for that afternoon that half of it never gets done. And then, besides, only one of us gets out at a time, and she can't teach herself things. It is an awful busy life, Miss Saunders. You people who don't have anything to do can't tell much about it. Joy laughed and took a moment for moralizing. Hester Mason, from her standpoint, believed that she, Joy Saunders, had nothing to do, while Miss Mason, no doubt, would have looked upon her life as an exceedingly laborious one. Was she not cake-maker and dessert-maker for the family of boarders, besides having the dusting and arranging to do? Was there a stratum below Hester Mason that had no afternoons once a month, and that would consider Hester's position one of ease and comfort? She knew that such was the case, and it made her face shadow to think of the infinite depths below, of which she had only faint conjectures, and about which her mother's firmly closed lips and darkening eyebrows told her all she knew. What a world it was! So much to do! And she could only put her hand out an inch, and give an upward touch to a girl who was above the depths, on the comfortable side already. Perhaps she could not even do that. Hester was regarding her with curious eyes. She made haste back into her world. When is your next afternoon out to be? Speaking with an interest that increased the girl's wonder. Why, on Thursday of next week, unless there is a great rush for something, or unless some girl I know is sick, and I give up my chance to her. We do such things often, have to be accommodating, you know. 
then suppose, if nothing prevents your freedom, that you spend the afternoon with me and learn this stitch and make yourself a sea foam. I can show you how to shape it. Wouldn't you like to? With you? Where? The girl's tones were simply curious. Why, at my home, of course. I live just out of Lexington Avenue. I know where you live, interrupted the girl. Dr. Everett boards at your house, doesn't he? Why, I should like it of all things, of course. Only, I, it seems a pity to trouble you. She hesitated over this sentence, and did not know how to express her thought. There was a curious sense of gratitude and wonderment as to why Joy Saunders should take the trouble. It will be a pleasure, Joy said eagerly, and felt that her words were very sincere. I should like to have you come, and you will need to be as early as you can and take tea and spend the evening with me, for, of course, there will be a great deal to learn. Only about the getting home, how will you manage that? Oh, there would be no trouble about that, Hester's loud, amused voice grated on Joy's ear. I can go home alone at ten o'clock as well as any other time. But aren't you afraid to do that when the city is so full of bad people? Joy could not keep the sense of having been shocked out of her tones. But the girl laughed. What good would it do to be afraid? she asked. We girls have to go from the store at midnight often during the holiday season. We have to go home after dark every winter night of our lives, and nine times out of ten something happens to hinder one or two of us until eight or nine o'clock or later. Where's the good of being cowardly about it? Poor folks, you see, have to get used to things. I used to be awful skittish at first, though, she added, as if in sympathy with Joy's ideas, but nobody ever hurt me. Was that true? Joy wondered. Had not the forced exposure to the streets and the cars and the crowds hurt her face, her manner, and heart? Must this of necessity be the case? If so, wherein lay the remedy? Here was her own sheltered life, for instance. What would her mother think of an evening streetcar ride for her, unprotected by someone in whom that mother reposed absolute confidence? What would she think of her walking the square between her home and the streetcar in the evening alone? What would tempt her to allow Joy to go at all in the vicinity which this girl lived? But how could the girl help it? Was she to be blamed then if her life and its inevitable necessities pushed her out into a world from which Joy was forever held back? All this was the open door to a world of puzzles. She must not stop over them now. She went gaily home to assure her mother that the muffins must be ready for the following Thursday, and that she desired them to be unprecedentedly good. And Miss Mason won't be at home, remarked the mother. That's too bad. The doctor wanted to get a hold on her, I think, and I was willing she should have some of my muffins. I suppose you couldn't have contrived to postpone the visit until she got home? No, indeed. Joy said with marked satisfaction. She felt very jubilant, having done her duty toward Miss Mason, and escaped the embarrassment of her presence. Preparations for entertaining her guest went on steadily. Just how she should manage the matter of conversation, Joy failed to see, and at last she put it resolutely from her, resolved to do her best and leave the rest. Preparations also went on elsewhere, 
It was early in the morning in Hester Mason's home, and she flew about her room with unusual speed, and came in presently dressed with unusual care. Much color about her dress, of course, yet there had been an effort at special neatness, a carefulness as to details, that was not natural to the girl. Hester Mason's home was a representative one, speaking for a large number of homes in a large city. It was not exactly medium, neither was it by any means the lowest type. Poverty, it is true, there was, at least the sort of poverty which most people mean when they use the word. A bare floor, save for the bit of carpet on which the aunt rested her feet as she sat all day and sewed. Not many chairs, and those of the hardest. North windows, two of them, with plain, dark, cheap paper for curtains. A common table, covered with an oilcloth spread. This was about the extent of the furniture. But the windows were clean, so was the floor, so was the plain black dress of the woman who sat and sewed. Her hair, too, was combed straight back, stretched across an uncompromising forehead. Her lips were thin and shut closely, and her gray eyes were keen and sharp as the needle that she drove through the heavy cloth. Not a gleam of brightness about the room or its occupant, and here was this girl tingling to the finger-ends with passionate worship for all that is bright and gay, shut into the four walls of this room and the bedroom opening out of it, which she shared with her aunt, and they were to her all that she knew of home. Infinitely above the swarming tenement houses, with their chairless, fireless, filthy rooms, oh yes indeed, but how infinitely below the sunset room at Joy Saunders's. The stern-faced aunt regarded her niece with a dissatisfied and disapproving air. She had always something to disapprove, and was so accustomed to it that she prepared herself even before the occasion offered. She saw occasion now. Dressed in your best, I declare. The next thing you will have to have a silk dress to wear to the store. I hope so, in serene good nature. I'd like a green one, sea-foam green, the new shade, you know, with pale pink ribbons to match. That's the style, only I don't like pale things. I think rose-color would look prettier. I shall not be home to supper. What now? That's no news, though. You are not home to supper half the time. If you choose to go without your supper so often, I don't know as I care. Hester laughed. Yes, but instead of going without, this time, I am going out to supper. What do you think of that? Hester Mason, she said in an impressive tone, what is going on now? Who has invited you, and why? It is little Joy Saunders, whose face is as pretty as a lily. She lives near Lexington Avenue with her mother, and she has invited me to spend the afternoon and stay to supper, and learn to make a hood and if you are good, I'll make one for you. As to why she invited me, I don't know, but I strongly suspect it is because she is good. Hester's voice had taken a touch of tenderness, despite her effort to be gay. Joy's invitation had softened her. She tied her poor little lunch into a brown paper and hastened away, leaving her aunt in a maze of doubt as to whether Hester had really gone so far astray as to deceive her with a trumped-up story of this sort, to cover a wild frolic that she was not willing to own. End of chapter 10 Recording by Tricia G.